welcome to Suede. This is Sarah Osteen, and I am very pleased today to be speaking with Michael Ventura, who is founder and CEO of Subrosa and author of uh, the book Applied Empathy. I uh, was lucky to get connected with Michael because we both have connections at Babson, and um, right now he's getting a lot of press for this book, and it um, made sense to talk with him. So, Michael, thanks so much for taking some time to speak with me today. Yeah, thank you. Happy to do it. Yeah, so, um, you know, we I, I want to hear everything about your organization and the book. I guess let, let's start with the book. What motivated you to, to write Applied Empathy? You know, um, my, my first answer to that is often masochism, um, because, <laughs> because writing a book was not as easy as, uh, as it's cracked up to be. But, um, but ultimately, it was a, it was a good, it was a good set of things that led us into writing it. The first was that I had been running my business for over a decade at that point. And, um, and what we did when we looked back over our case history and the work we had done for a lot of clients, we started to ask ourselves, you know, is there any special sauce, right? Like, is there a real thing we do that is genuinely different than what we do for other clients, uh, what other people do for clients. And so we started to interrogate the case history and take a look at projects. And ultimately, what we came to find was that, yes, in fact, there was. Every time we were using empathy, we were doing our best work. Every time we were getting out of our own shoes, really perspective-taking, really kind of putting the hearts and minds of people we were solving a problem for at the forefront we were doing better work than when we didn't. And so we set out to then create a methodology about it, never really intending to write a book. And what happened was uh, I started going out and giving a couple of speaking engagements on the topic. I got invited to go speak at Princeton and went down there to do that and came off the stage. And the dean of the engineering school said, this is really interesting. We would love it if you could create a curriculum and teach this at Princeton. And so we agreed to do uh, create a 12-week class and start teaching it there. And then on the heels of that, we said, we've got enough material here. We could actually probably put a book together. And so it was a very organic process from really just wanting to differentiate and, and understand our differentiators to ultimately arriving at the idea of, of doing a book. Were there some additional learnings that came out of the class at Princeton? Did you evolve the thinking? For sure. We taught it for three semesters, and each semester it definitely got a little more refined, a little tighter screw. Um, and the uh, at the end of the day, I think one of the big learnings we got was that, you know, while on the surface you hear many people hear empathy and they think of it as a soft skill and they think of it as something some people i mean it's often very mis misdefined by many people um people hear empathy and they think it's about being nice or being compassionate or sympathetic um it's none of those things those are often side effects of empathy but it's not empathy unto itself um so one of the things that we learned by sitting in the engineering school working with students who are mechanical engineer computer science folks um people who have generally a bit more of a left brain tendency was that empathy still plays a major role in setting them up for success as problem solvers and leaders. So how do you go about defining empathy? So I define it as self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. And self-aware is tough, right? We can't, no, no one is wholly self-aware, but can we become 
aware of some of our biases? Can we become aware of some of the things that color our thinking or our way of doing our jobs? And can we build enough of a muscle memory that we can notice when that's happening and step outside it and truly stand in someone else's perspective, see it from their world and use that insight to understand them deeper and ultimately build you know, a meaningful solution for them? So how do you see that in contrast to sort of the traditional definition of empathy? So it isn't in terrible contrast. There are there I would say empathy is a spectrum disorder, if you will. Uh, <laughs> there, there um, you know there's a there's a, a, a popular book um, called The Case Against Empathy that um, has been talked about a lot and, and yes. comes up often in conversations with me and you know, I actually uh, agree with the author um, because what what he talks about in his book is that there is a over application of empathy, and that there is too much of a quote unquote feeling into the feelings of other people. And I agree with that actually. That I think empathy can be overused, and it can cause burnout, and it can color your own judgment if you are letting it take over you to some degree. And so. Um, I think we also probably agree that cognitive empathy is actually a really valuable skill set. And that's really what we're thinking and talking about when, when we talk about applied empathy is how do we cultivate a sense of cognitive empathy where you can shift your mental perspective into someone else's. And then once you gather that perspective, you can drop back into your own perspective and, and use that to, to create something of substance. So what was the reception from a bunch of engineers at Princeton? I mean, imagine that the initial response could be, this is sort of touchy-feely. Were they able to make the transition to see how this closely connected to their work? Over time, yes, but you're right. The first first class, uh, the students definitely squirm a little bit and are are sort of confused by the subjectivity that comes along with this because inherent in this is that you will discover multiple right answers, right? And engineers don't necessarily thrive in a subjective uh, environment as much as an objective one. So telling them that there are multiple right answers and that you're going to have to you know, decide what the right, right answer is, is uh, fries some circuits in the beginning. But it eventually comes around to building a sense of confidence and a sense of wherewithal in their own decision-making that, yes, I have evaluated these four or five different perspectives and based on the needs of the product or the idea or the business or whatever it is, this seems to be the right one for us to pursue, right? So it gives them, it gives them a sense of decision-making uh, criteria. That's, that's really cool. So how has this methodology become an integral part of your business at Subrosa? So I think passively it always was. What has mm-hmm. changed for us in the past five years as we've developed it is that we've now really standardized an approach to problem solving for our clients. And the type of work we do is quite varied. You know, on one end of the spectrum, it might entail culture and capability change or development, um, something along the lines of org design, uh, you know, coming in when there might be a culture uh, issue inside an organization, something along, uh, you know, with diversity and inclusion or uh, something akin to that. And so we'll come in and use this approach to help unlock a solution. But we've also used it on the brand and on the product development and on the business side to help understand different audiences, consumer groups, 
shareholder needs, whatever it might be, and using those insights to help solve external solutions for the client as well. That's great. Can you give me some examples of, of how you have brought this to life with a client? You don't have to necessarily say the client, but just what, what this looks like. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll give you a, a example that's in the book from GE. Mm-hmm. So we worked with General Electric on a particular project focused around um, their mammography business. And they said, uh, in terms of market share, they're third in category. They had uh, Philips and Siemens ahead of them. And they wanted to be first, and they wanted to figure out a way to get there. And they believed that we had a methodology that might help them do so. However, uh, they said, look, the, the big constraint on this is that you can't change our core product. Be because that's a seven-year process, and we are looking for a market share shift much faster than that. So come in, give us some recommendations on how we can grow our business without necessarily doing a, uh, a big piece of uh, re-engineering of our core product. And so what we did was we used our process to have conversations with different stakeholders, patients, doctors, cancer survivors, things like that. And we learned a ton of stuff. And to keep the case short, I'll cut to the sort of chase of it, which was 87% roughly of the women we spoke to cited that the number one reason they don't get screened on a 12-month basis is because the memory of pain from the prior screening is such that you kind of prolong the appointment-making process. Now, obviously, this is important for women to get screened on a 12-month basis for their own well-being, but also from a hospital standpoint and from a GE standpoint, these these hospitals' um, revenue models work when the machines are running at full capacity. So if you're not scheduling enough screenings every day, you're you know you're, you've made a big investment in this device and it's not paying back into the business. So they want to have full schedules, and of course we want patients to be uh, taking care of their health. So. All of that said, uh, the second biggest complaint, since we couldn't change the machine and, and pain was the number one complaint, 82%, I believe it was, uh, said that the room is freezing cold. And we said, well, that seems like something that we could dig into a bit more. And we started asking some questions and we went to the engineers at GE and we said, why is the room so cold? Average is 64 degrees Fahrenheit. And they said that the room temperature is uh, optimized for the lifespan of the machine. And we said, well, that doesn't seem highly empathic and, uh, and certainly doesn't seem like it's got the patient's uh, well-being in mind. What would happen if we increased the temperature by, let's say, I don't know, 10 degrees? And they said um, not much would affect uh, – the, the machine wouldn't necessarily be affected. Uh, it's just not, quote-unquote, optimal. And now, I'm not picking on engineers because they have a job to do, and their job is to look after the machine and set machine guidelines. But the problem was that there was no one along that journey that stepped up from a patient advocacy standpoint or a human-centered design standpoint and said, hey, we could actually do this better. And so that, along with a litany of other sort of quote-unquote soft insights, things like people don't like the gown, the appointment-making process is frustrating, the uh, the sentiment or the way you feel about waiting for this particular appointment or worse, waiting for the results after the screening, um, is one woman called it, you know, uh, it feels like a quote appointment with death. 
right? It's about waiting to find out if something terrible is happening, as opposed to how people feel when they go to get an annual physical or something else that might be a little more perceived as body maintenance, right? So we went back and said to GE, look, we don't think you're in the product business. I think you're actually in the product and service business. And we can redesign these facilities to take all of these best practices and increase the temperature and give people a better gown and change the lexicon and make the appointment making process better and all of those things. And I think that we can actually spur growth. And we did a trial with Memorial Sloan Kettering. We increased the temperature of the room by 10 degrees. We gave people a better gown. We did all those things I just said. And the complaint of pain dropped by nearly half. Now, the women were still going through the same process. The compression on the breast tissue was the same as it was 60 days prior when they had been screened under normal conditions. But the complaint of pain dropped so precipitously because they were more comfortable and they were actually treated better and all of those things. What was even more astounding was that increase in temperature and those other soft science adjustments actually increased the efficacy of the test by over 10%. So we could actually find 10% more cancer because these patients were comfortable and they were relaxed and their muscle tissue relaxed. And so GE said, wow, we're onto something with this. And ultimately, um, hospitals within their announcement day, um, 10 hospitals signed up that day uh, to prototype and test it with them and actually uh, begin to, to work on designing imaging centers in hospitals that took those best practices into play. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is incredible. It's such a clear sense of value that you are offering women um, and the idea that it improves the opportunity of actually finding cancer is amazing. Uh, So this is a really dumb question. Recognizing that you are a brand strategy and device and design practice, how, how did the, how did those findings impact GE's brand? So interestingly, the, the brand, well, the, the, there's two ways of answering that. I guess from a medical standpoint, the, the healthcare business actually started to take a real positioning and line around how empathy could play a role in that business mm-hmm. um, and how being a patient-centric business was ultimately good business to be in. Now, obviously, in the past 18 months, GE has had a massive uh, decline and has gone through a ton of turmoil. Um, The healthcare business hasn't necessarily suffered as bad as some other divisions as a result. Um, But the overall brand, one of the things that was interesting... um, we had done a different piece of work, which I won't get into all the details of, but it was essentially a, uh, an innovation lab for GE uh, that we called GE Garages. And it was a way to show what type of work GE actually does. Most people, when you imagine a, a GE factory, or frankly, any factory, you imagine machines making machines. Uh, but what we came to find through our research and through connecting with empathy and really interviewing, you know, uh, factory workers and you know union laborers and all of this sort of stuff was we came to find that um, actually about ninety percent of what GE makes is enabled by machines but made by people. You know there's still people on those floors moving things around, screwing them in, actually designing the 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 the, the wind turbine that's going to create power at a deep you know a, a deep sea wind farm, right? So there's there's real human work at play. And so, uh, on a brand level, we started to tell those stories in these innovation labs that we toured around the world and, uh, and started collaborating with local communities to help solve their problems. And Interbrand, who does a big study every year on behalf of the, the um, 
corporate world and looks at what is driving uh, brand value and brand perception in the marketplace, um, ranked GE in the top 10 that year and cited the garages as the as the only project it mentioned and said, this was an example of GE really kind of getting out of its uh, its four walls and meeting people halfway and showing them, showing them that they're interested in understanding what they know and how they engage with the brand. And so again, it came back to empathy. Amazing. So uh, having a very clear impact on brand and strategic findings, um, how does this process positively influence people? I mean, you've obviously brought given these examples where there's uh, improvements in healthcare, that's an, an obvious positive impact. But are there other influences on internal employees and, and clients that you can kind of point to as part of this design thinking process? Yeah, for sure. So I think that one of the things that start as a qualitative outcome for this kind of work, but actually lead to quantitative outcomes is is particularly on the internal culture of an organization. So when you start to practice empathy, it is a uh, slow down to speed up process, right? It does take a little while. You have to ask the extra question. You have to take a little more time to uh, actually uh, get to know people or get to know their perspective. Um, and so it does take a little work, but what you start to see qualitatively is that high-functioning teams start to emerge, that people feel valued, that people feel like their opinion matters and that they see their opinion show up in a presentation or in a product solution or whatever it is, right? They start to kind of feel uh, things, decisions start to feel demystified and more understandable. And the organization starts to feel more inclusive and collaborative. But what the knock-on effect of that is, because those are all very qualitative things. And yeah, you can survey people and sort of measure them, but it's still, it's, it's a qual sentiment. Uh, But what starts to happen on a quant side is you start to see employee retention go up. You start to see uh, recruitment of talent shift in a positive direction because uh, different type of people are becoming attracted to working at this type of organization. Um, You start to see uh, stronger ROI on uh, marketing and communications programs that are getting rolled out into the world because perspective has been taken and people actually are designing solutions that are meeting consumers more on their terms. So in time, those qualitative changes beget more quantitative measurable results as well. It's um, amazing. So when you go into an organization, where do you start the process? Is it with senior leaders? Um, is it more of a ground up? How do you see this process working best from a leadership perspective? It depends on the problem at hand, but I would say generally speaking, we do come in at a, at a leadership level because that's usually where change has to start. Right. If you are looking to affect change in an organization, it's very difficult to create a, a coalition of the willing at the grassroots level that will ultimately shift leadership decision making. You kind of have to know that a leader is willing to, even if they're not um, overtly sold on it at the get-go, that they have to be um, willing to be a change maker at some degree. That said, there are instances on a project-by-project basis or on a uh, specific need 
basis where you can come in at a non-leadership level and still tackle uh, a piece of work and, and get it meaningfully done. Um, but if you're really seeking to change culture, you know, culture is one of those things that rarely in an organization is owned by any one group or person. Right. Some organizations might tell you that like their CEO really sets the culture of the organization. Um, some organizations might say that their marketing team or their brand team really governs it. But in my experience, most of the time, culture is a shared attribute across human resources and marketing and communications and brand and product and leadership and strategy and everyone in between. And if the organization is working collectively and aligned on what those tenets of their culture are and how they are held true to, then ultimately you get to a really solid place. Do you find that CEOs and senior leaders are quite receptive to this or is that, are there sometimes hurdles to get over to enable them to start thinking this way? I think the the biggest hurdle we often encounter is the the misdefinition of empathy, right? As we said at the beginning, that people people don't know what we're actually talking about when we say empathy. And so then to teach them what it actually is and to help them understand its value and its impact to a business, that that softens the the resistance quite quickly. The other thing that is it's an interesting dynamic, maybe is the best way of putting it, about empathy is that empathy is unto itself neutral, right? So I could understand you very deeply and then do nothing about it, right? I could still go on and do my life the way I normally do it. Or I could allow that to affect me in a positive way and interact with you in a different way that's more productive. Or I could allow it to affect me in a negative way and actually become more manipulative based on what I know of you, right? So I was having this conversation with someone just this morning. I said, uh, Cambridge Analytica is a prime example of empathy. It's nefarious empathy. Mm. It's evil empathy, right? right? But what they did was they really deeply understood a, a particular demographic and psychographic and their behaviors, and then they fed them information in a way that would ultimately manipulate their behavior. While that is not the kind of work we're trying to help organizations do, it is grounded in empathy. Right. Um, so shifting the thinking and understanding of it, it, it can be hard. Yes, exactly. And and letting them know that it is the gathering of, of understanding is the first step. It is then in the application of it that you really see the impact. So there's a little bit of a wait and see. Yeah, there. I think there has to be. Yeah. And it's perhaps you're not going to see the, the impact of it day one. So <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how has this process impacted you as a leader? Have you evolved as you have sort of flushed out this concept of applied empathy? In terms of my leadership inside Subrosa? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, as an organization, really have made an effort to train up our whole team on this and that everyone has a degree of fluency with it and that this isn't, you know, just a, a nice italicized uh, piece of language in, in a document, but really a way we live and breathe here. And so I think that, you know, for us, it, making the investment internally has paid huge dividends for us in the long run because people really know and understand how their work gets done, how their, uh, impact is um, valued and and ultimately how to work better together as a team. 
So what does that mean? That people are using this methodology on a day-to-day basis or how does that play out in the culture? Yeah, people are using it for every single project that comes in the door. Our, our methodological approach works uh, is at work on every client engagement we have. There's not a single one that it doesn't it doesn't show up in. Um, and it also is at play in our own internal operations, right? How we develop our own brand and message our story to the world and uh, continue to cultivate a thought leadership point of view on empathy and its role in business and leadership. Does it even have an impact on sort of a even like moment to moment basis, like how you conduct meetings or the way you set an agenda? To a degree, for sure. Um, I think that we are very conscious of not getting high on our own supply, if you will, um, that we're making sure that we're thinking about how to include outside perspectives in pretty much every conversation we have. So that we're not just like sitting in a room saying, wouldn't it be cool if... But we're saying, have we, you know, have we talked to those consumers? Do we have that information in the room? Do we have an insight that this is being organized around so that this gets done? Um, we've also created different ways of providing peer feedback, 360 reviews, um, compensation structures, skills development, you know, a whole host of different things inside our own organization to ultimately make sure that as someone moves up the ranks here, they're well positioned to, um, and, and it's clear to them how they will grow. That's great. So you're living and breathing it at, at all points along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been incredibly successful. For those listeners who don't know you, you started Subrosa like in your mid-20s. Is that right? Yeah. 20, 23 was the first version of it. It was under a different brand. But yeah, I've been basically an entrepreneur since 23. And that's awesome. So where where, where have you failed as a leader? Um, and, and maybe how has that sort of impact the, impacted the way you start thinking about applied empathy? Are, are there any examples mm-hmm. you can share? Sure. Yeah. I mean, where haven't I, to be honest? Um, I mean, if anyone remembers uh, what they were like at 23 and what they are like uh, now, I'm sure that they, you know, the, the, they blush and, and cover their eyes the same way I do. Um, you know, I think one of the big areas for me is that as I grew as a leader, I'm very conscious of the fact that good talent sometimes passed through these doors and I wasn't a uh, deft enough leader for them and we lost good people prematurely. Uh, and I think that that's you know, that's been something I've always, you know, to some degree regretted, but also take as a inevitability, right? That as you grow as a leader, you're ultimately going to become better at managing and supporting and, uh, and, and helping people develop their themselves, both personally and professionally, um, going through a lot of personal development myself, uh, during that time. Um, you know, I wasn't as equipped as I could be, uh, to lead people, with a real empathic point of view. And so I think over the years, that's been a big focus of mine is how to be a better uh, retainer of, of people's talents and uh, a nurturer of their growth on both a personal and professional level. So you feel like you maybe lost people along the way that could have benefited from some development undoubtedly or or even just from um you know a better management style in the organization that had yet to be discovered and applied right you know this is the nothing here is static and we are always improving and getting better at what we do and you know we hopefully are always better than we were yesterday uh but you know 
in a business that has been a going concern for as long as this one has 15 years now, um, the file on people who have worked here is always going to be thicker than the file of people who do work mm-hmm. here, right? And so there have been good folks who have come through the door and maybe it was the wrong time for them or maybe it was the wrong time for us as an organization or me as a leader to be supportive to them. And so, you know, I I hope that in the, you know, in looking at the, the, the windshield and not the rear view mirror, we can continue to get better for, for those folks we spend our time with every day. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So um, where do you see applied empathy going from here? I mean, are there political ramifications? Are there other opportunities for this concept to be leveraged? Yeah, so we have interestingly seen the attention or the the draw for this exist in a variety of different sectors and segments of the of the population you know obviously from a corporate standpoint we've worked with a lot of big corporate brands and startups um we worked with the obama administration for 18 months using this uh particularly on native american rights and resources mm-hmm. uh and stem education in indian country which was a really big honor for us and we worked directly with the office of the first lady um and that was an amazing time um and boy do we miss them uh the uh the we've also worked uh within the united nations using this uh as a as a tool for um particularly indigenous programs uh, focused on skilling up and empowering indigenous leaders around the world to help them understand how to communicate their message for policy issues and things like that. So we've been pulled into the into the public sector a couple times already. Um, we've also uh, brought this work to West Point and have actually trained career military people in how to how empathy can play a role in their leadership uh, style and in their in, in their leadership capabilities. So it's it's fascinating where it's taking us. I really couldn't predict where we'll, we'll go next, but we're excited to be along for the ride. Well, I I love it. It is sort of a remarkable to think about where it could go from here. So sort of thinking about. Uh, where people can take this and incorporate it into their own lives, what skills do leaders need to develop in order to use empathy more effectively? And and I say that recognizing that there are leaders at all levels within organizations. So, Yeah, it's not just who sits in the corner office. Absolutely. So what what can Um, people do? uh, First and foremost is uh, getting self-aware as much as possible. I know that's like a big ask for any human, but... um, Someone doing doing the work to understand where your own biases may be, because if you can't have empathy for yourself, and there's a whole debate psychologically speaking, some psychologists will say, well, no one can actually have self-empathy. I agree that no one ha- can have complete self-empathy, but I think we can all practice self-observation enough to understand when we're not listening and should be, when we're not present and should be when we're letting our own bias color our decision-making, so on and so forth. And so I think one of the first things leaders can do is turn the lens inward and see where their own shortcomings might be and what they might do to help improve upon those, first and foremost. The second thing that I would say is making an effort to really understand the people around them and how they're motivated. Because Everyone is different, and one-size-fits-all leadership really doesn't beget the sort of growth and uh, 
uh, inclusiveness that today's businesses require. You know, if this was 40 years ago and it was a rule with the iron fist kind of mentality, you might have been able to still grow and thrive. But unfortunately, the world has or fortunately, frankly, the world has changed very dramatically. And and the expectations that people have on what leaders provide and how those leaders empower them to grow uh, have have changed. And so making an effort to understand your team, understand what motivates them, understand why they work here in the first place is really critical. And then eventually, of course, getting out to the consumer level and understanding that most organizations don't have a single consumer, right? You have your end consumers who might actually have 15 subsets inside them, uh, but then you might also have the media and shareholders and uh, prospective employees and, and the like. Yeah, it's great ideas. Sometimes I like to get real tactical with leadership stuff too. So any specific ideas for how someone can work to recognize their own shortcomings? You know, self-observation is is wonderful, but sometimes people don't even know how to go about doing that. So what have you done to perhaps identify gaps in your development? We have an, a we have a, a framework in the in the book and in our process that we call the whole self, which is a seven step process to evaluate different facets of yourself that ultimately help kind of unearth what might be some shortcomings. Um, so that's one thing we do with a lot of clients. It's it's probably a little drawn out to go through in detail on 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 this, but it is a sort of a a, a methodology and a framework that is very. Um, tactical. Uh, another thing is uh, to take some uh, unconscious bias training. And there's plenty of it available both online and in person where you can take uh, some tests and actually see where your unconscious biases are and be becoming aware of them. I think those are two great first steps. Well, this is awesome. Thank you, Michael, so much for um, taking the time to speak with me and to really break down some of these concepts. I am in, in the midst of reading your book and I, it's, it's re remarkably interesting and has application at, at all levels within organizations. So um, I, I hope that we can stay in touch and I'm eager to hear the next steps with Subrosa. Thanks. Yeah, really appreciate the conversation and uh, looking forward to hearing what you think of the book when you're done. Well, great. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.